Good morning. Open your Bibles to Matthew 14, please. We're going to look at verses 1 through 21 of Matthew 14. The topic there, Jesus withdraws when he hears that John the Baptist was executed after Herodias had her daughter dance for Herod and ask for John's head on a platter. The title of our message, Dance Mom. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning. I pray that this text would speak to our hearts about Jesus. We see through a glass darkly now, the Bible says, Lord, but Nevertheless, we're looking for the reflected image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, because we want to become more like him. That's the goal. It's your goal to conform us and change us into his image day by day from glory to glory. We want to cooperate with that, Lord, and, and do what is necessary to become more like our precious Lord. And this morning, you've brought us to this text at this time to accomplish that purpose, and so I pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to our church. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I'm guessing the answer is no, but did you ever wonder why William Shatner was suddenly dropped as spokesperson for Priceline.com? Did that cause you any problems? A 2012 article explained uh, why, and it said, uh, the title of the article was, Priceline kills the messenger because the ads worked too well. The problem was that Shatner was too closely identified with his character, The Negotiator, and Priceline was moving to focus on its fixed price discount instead of the name-your-own-price business. And so they, they had to get rid of his character because they didn't want people negotiating prices anymore. They killed off his character in an ad that had him saving folks out of the back of a teetering bus that he was unable to exit from in time before the vehicle made a fiery, spectacular crash into a ravine. Don't kill the messenger is a phrase you hear from time to time when somebody is called upon to deliver bad news. It's not usually associated with delivering good news, but it ought to be. Historically, more bearers of good news have been killed than bearers of bad news. Obviously, the good news I'm talking about is the greatest news of all, the gospel by which men are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Multiplied millions have been, are being, and will yet be martyred for bringing that message of good news. Among the most notable messengers was John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, for telling the truth that accompanied the gospel, he was imprisoned and beheaded. It forms the backdrop for our study of the first 21 verses of Matthew 14. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, there is always a sinister plan to silence you as God's messenger. And number two, there is always a spiritual plan to utilize you as God's messenger. Verses one through 11, let's take a look at the sinister plans to silence you. Now our focus comes out of verse 13 where it says, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there. What he heard is in verses one through 11. It caused him to withdraw with his disciples and give them an object lesson, which we'll see in verses 12 through 21. And so beginning in verse one, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. Herod is a family name, and that's why we are easily confused about which Herod was meant. Herod the Great 
was the Herod who slew the children after the birth of Jesus Christ. Herod Antipas was a younger son of Herod the Great. He wasn't really a king. He is a tetrarch, which means he was the ruler over a portion of the kingdom. He is the Herod in our verses who had John the Baptist killed. Then there's also Herod Agrippa. He's the Herod who slew James and imprisoned Peter in the book of Acts. He's a grandson of Herod the Great. And finally, there's Herod Agrippa II. He was the Herod before whom the apostle Paul was tried in the book of Acts. He was a great-grandson of Herod the Great. Warren Wiersbe writes, all the Herods had Edomite blood in their veins and hated the Jews. They were descendants of Esau. They were treacherous rulers who in the Bible typify the God of this age. Like Satan, all of them were liars and murderers. Keep that comparison to Satan in mind. It'll come into play when we make our application of these verses to our own lives. We'll see that non-believers act as Herods in our lives to try to silence us. Verse two, Herod said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him, put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Herod had been married to the daughter of Aretas, the king of Nabatea in Arabia. It was one of those political marriages to try and uh, keep their kingdoms at peace. During a visit to Rome, Herod fell for Herodias, who was the wife of his brother Philip. Herodias was a granddaughter of Herod the Great, so Philip, her husband, was also her uncle. And Herod Antipas, who fell for her, was a half-uncle of hers as well. Okay. In spite of all that, he ran off with Herodias. Herod's wife then returned to her father, King Aretas, and he waged war against Herod, a war that Herod would lose. Rome had to come in and save him. Adultery, incest, divorce. John boldly spoke out against their sexual sins. Earlier I said it was truth that accompanies the gospel. God's messengers are called upon to deliver the whole message, not just the parts that they enjoy or happen to agree with. And so John uh, spoke out against the wrongs, the sins that Herod was committing as the ruler of the Jews. Now, did Herod really think John had risen from the dead? Probably not. If you don't believe the truth, any lie will do. If you really get into studying some of the world's religions and philosophies, uh, of course, obviously we're biased, you know, but not just biased because we're Christians. We've had our, our minds open to truth and we can understand spiritual things. But you look at them and you think, could anybody really believe that? Do you want to believe that? Uh, especially reincarnation. Do you really want to come back as something else worse than you are now? I don't think so. Now, by imprisoning him, Herod temporarily silenced John, at least from speaking publicly. As far as he could go politically, 
That's as far as he could go politically since the people recognized John as a prophet. So he could have him arrested. The people wouldn't revolt. They weren't happy about it, but he dare not kill him. But Herodias had other plans. Verse six, when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Now this would be Salome, Herod's stepdaughter, who commentators suggest was in her late teens. At that time, at these types of banquets, the women would go off by themselves, leaving the men to drink and party. When it says that she danced before them, you can be certain it had the atmosphere of a strip club. Uh, so this is a sordid, uh, kind of uh, wicked, uh, grotesque thing that's happening here. As a princess, this was unheard of. It just wasn't done. Yet in this case, her own mom put her up to it for her own selfish ends, not exactly mother of the year material. And so you, you get the picture. Herodias hates John so much that she concocts a plan that involves prostituting her daughter in order to get what she wants. It may be less sordid, but today when a dad or a mom follows their lust and commits sexual sin and destroys a marriage, they're thinking of their own satisfaction rather than the welfare of their children. And I don't care how much people tell me they love their children, I believe them. Of course they love their children. They, don't, they just don't love them the right way. They don't love them enough to say no to sin and to continue on a righteous path. Some years ago, I watched a sci-fi movie in which aliens were, unbeknownst to us, using us uh, as their guinea pigs for experiments. A mom had her child removed from her and her memory erased, but her motherly instinct, which was the point of the experiment, proved too strong, and she found her daughter. Motherly and fatherly instincts are more and more being pushed aside in favor of lust, and it's just wrong. So verse seven, therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. The king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. You may have heard someone say jokingly, Nemo didn't have a mom. Do you know what I'm talking about? In the Pixar film, Finding Nemo, many parents choose to skip the opening sequence in which Nemo's mom is eaten by a barracuda saving her eggs. And so I hope I didn't spoil the movie for anybody. But uh, there is an opening scene. And, and so I know with our grandkids, Gene and Kelly say, start it at the, after the opening credit, you know, and stuff. Cause, so they have no idea what's going on there unless they're watching online right now, uh, which, uh, sorry. Uh, but anyway, it's a nod to parents trying to shelter their kids from disturbing images. Herodias would have been okay with the Barracuda. If it wasn't bad enough that she had Salome dance, she had her ask for a man to be executed and then carry his head on a platter back to her. Wow. By the way, in case you're wondering, and I know you are, the Jewish historian Josephus reports that Herodias and Herod Antipas were eventually exiled by the Roman government. 
Salome decided to join them in exile rather than be alone. The emperor had sent them to Spain, and as she was passing over a frozen river, the ice broke, and she sank up to her neck, and she died. Uh, it, it's not the background for the movie Frozen, by the way, but it's... Uh, I don't know, it just came to me. Not wanting to lose face, Herod was okay with John losing his head. Now, who'd have thought adultery would lead to murder? Well, I know who. As the church lady used to say, Satan. Remember the church lady? <laughs> We're reaching back today. Sin breeds sin. Sin permeates your whole way of thinking, darkens your judgment. We ought to therefore pursue holiness in even the smallest things so that one bad thing doesn't lead to another. Herod and Herodias provide a good example of people being taken captive by the devil to do his will. I use that verse a lot. It's out of the pastoral epistles where Paul is writing and he says, the devil takes people captive to do his will. And this is a great example of that. They surrendered to the passions of their flesh and the next thing you know, they were doing things that even they once would not have done. Prostituting their own daughter and murdering a godly man you knew was innocent to tell the truth. It's crazy. There is always a sinister plan to silence you as God's messenger. That's what we draw out of this. When Satan is in power over a government, the plan is to imprison you or to kill you as we've seen throughout history and we see happening around the world today. I mean, you can't doubt that. That's just a historical fact. In regimes that we would look at and say, that's a little bit demonic, a little bit satanic. That's certainly not godly. The gospel is persecuted. Christians are imprisoned they are uh, killed for their faith. So that's his strategy to silence uh, the word of God. Our situation here in the States is less brutal, but no less sinister. Non-believers are still taken captive by the devil to do his will, and if he can't imprison you or kill you, he'll persecute you in other ways. He, he wants to silence you. Now, while he's mounting direct assaults using non-believers, the devil is also working to undermine you in more subtle ways. You have to believe he's always strategizing to destroy things like your reputation, your marriage, your family, and your testimony. It sounds serious, and it is. So what can be done? Well, it's simple, really. It's so simple, we often neglect it. Keep yourself in the love of God by spending time with the Lord, walking in obedience, fellowshipping with his saints, serving others for his sake. The simple everyday Christian life will be all the defense that you need. Another way of putting this is, is don't let down your guard, don't relax, don't think it couldn't happen to you. Now don't get me wrong, you're gonna be assaulted but when the storm comes, you're gonna withstand it because you've been building on the rock that is Christ. Let me therefore say it one more time. Right now, there are sinister, even savage plans against you to rob, kill, and destroy your life. If you're a Christian, that is just a truth because the devil was a liar and a thief and a murderer from the beginning. He hates God, he hates Christ, he hates you, and he is planning against you. Doesn't matter that you're thinking you're not very important, you're no Paul the Apostle, you're no John the Baptist, it doesn't matter, he hates you and he's planning against you. 
Some of those plans have yet to be put into motion. He's looking, he's got lots of time. Uh, you know, from his point of view, he's been around longer than you. He can wait to spring traps on you. Uh, but he, he will put them in motion. Don't help out the devil by neglecting your spiritual life. Uh, just get into the things that Christians ought to be doing. Now, our second point, beginning in verse 12, there's always a spiritual plan to utilize you as God's messenger as well. Satan isn't the only one with a plan. God has a plan for you too as his messenger, and we see that in the feeding of the 5,000. It says in verse 12, then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. I'm not sure what John's disciples were doing for the several months he was in prison. I think I read that it was upwards of 16 months. Whatever it was, it couldn't have been easy. It reminds us that serving the Lord can be rather demanding. I mean, just think of it. You're following John the Baptist. He, he has this tremendous ministry, and then all of a sudden he's imprisoned for 16 months. It, it, it throws you for a loop. Uh, but these guys continued on uh, and uh, were faithful. I wonder if Satan throws tantrums when things like this happen. He had John killed, and instead of hindering John's disciples, they risked their own lives to give him a proper burial, and then they went and joined up with Jesus. I mean, if you're the devil, you can't win for losing because no matter what you do, it, it comes against you. The devil's worst brought out their best. Not to forget, too, that John was now in paradise hanging out with Abraham and David and the rest of the Old Testament saints. So it's a, it's a lose-lose for the devil, no matter how you look at it. Verse 13, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. When the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. Jesus departed. It was a strategic move, not one born out of fear. Having been rejected by the religious elite, Jesus had been explaining to his disciples what was going to occur between his first coming and his second coming. He had been preparing them for his absence for when they would carry on his work on the earth as messengers of the gospel, we are still in that time, uh, his disciples, his messengers. His withdrawal was an object lesson, or I should say it provided the opportunity for a lesson, seeing that the multitudes followed him on foot. He tried to get over on, uh, by boat, or he did, but they followed him around the shore on foot. And when Jesus went out, verse 14, he saw a great multitude. He was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. There was such a thing as Jesus goggles. When you put them on, this is what you and I would see. The mass of humanity, sick with the dreadful, deadly disease of sin, on the verge of physical death that will mean for them eternal suffering in hell, separated from God who loves them, who is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to eternal life. That's, as far as I can tell, the way Jesus saw the world. He looked upon people, was moved with compassion because he saw their real condition uh, spiritually and their eternal condition should they perish. The question then is, do we see them? The test for whether or not we see them is whether or not we are moved with compassion for them. Jesus looked upon people, he was moved with compassion. If I am Christ-like, that part of me needs to be moved with compassion. And the evidence we are moved with compassion for people is that we do something to help them. 
Let's take a situation we see every day, the homeless. Seems there are at least two extremes. Thinking they are all con artists who could be working as CEOs of their own company if they really wanted to apply themselves rather than mooching off of us. That's one extreme. Or we throw money and resources at them without any accountability in order to ease our guilty consciences and we hope that we're not contributing to their delinquency. With Jesus goggles, we see real human beings who need Jesus Christ even if they are being less than honest. How many of these people in these huge crowds that followed Jesus for three and a half years, how many of them do you think were being dishonest and deceptive? How, How many times do you think Jesus got ripped off? And so even if they're being less than honest and we act to assist them in ways that are consistent with treating them with dignity but expecting accountability. We do what the Lord tells us to do that will really help people, spiritually first and then physically. Now bear in mind, Jesus withdrew on purpose to prep his disciples for their work between his two comings. And so here comes the object lesson. Verse 15, when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place, the hour is late, send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And so that's why we say it was a crowd of upwards of 20,000 people. Their needs were overwhelming. There was no way they could be met with the physical resources available to the disciples. Practicality, logic, call it what you will, said, send them away. Ah, but where is the compassion in that? There isn't any. And so get compassion is lesson one. Jesus, I think, was setting the disciples up so that they would come and say, Lord, these people are needy. We have to feed them. What are we gonna do? Disciples went to Jesus, and that's good, but they went with their own plan born out of a lack of compassion and which discounted anything supernatural. They assessed the situation correctly, 20,000 people, five loaves, two fish. Um, You need to send these people away. I know they're hungry. Some of them are probably not gonna make it to villages. Uh, There's probably not enough food in those villages anyway to feed this crowd. But hey, what do you want us to do? You know, all we have is just a handful of food. And so one of the biggest problems in the life of a church is the lack of reliance on the Lord to do above and beyond what we ask or think. It's to immediately default to the natural, to look at our own resources and say, well, we can't, there's nothing we can do. I don't have it, so God bless you. Sometimes beginning in the spirit, we end up relying on our own ideas. We concentrate on the physical rather than the spiritual, the natural rather than the supernatural. Now, having said that, please notice what the Lord immediately said to them. You give them something to eat. The disciples thought their resources insufficient when in fact, Jesus said, you've got all you need. 
to accomplish the task. It's a kind of a different way of thinking. I mean, you and I don't normally look at five loaves and two fish and 20,000 people and think, we got it covered. It's, you know, what more could you want? Uh, But Jesus said, in this situation, at this time, it's no accident that that's all you have. You have a sufficient provision. They only had to give the Lord the five loaves and two fishes, and he would multiply it. It's not a matter of stretching your resources by being more frugal. Hey, John, how thin do you think you can cut this fish? You know, you ever do that when you're, I know, you know, well, you know, when the kids were little and we didn't have hardly any money, you know, it was like, well, really, peanut butter sandwiches, really, they're only that big, you know. You, you don't want a bigger peanut butter sandwich than that. And you don't want any more peanut butter on it. You certainly don't want jelly on it, you know, that kind of a thing, trying to stretch your resources. But that's not it. It's that God will act in ways that are beyond your asking or thinking as you offer things to him. In, in their case, in this case, they had to give everything that was available to them. We are rarely called upon by God to literally give everything that we have. So let me make that point. There was the rich young ruler who came to Jesus wanting to follow Jesus and Jesus seeing his situation, knowing his covetousness said, you have to get rid of, you have to divest yourself. You'll never follow me if you hold on to your wealth. But this isn't a, that isn't the norm. And so we don't teach, we have no teaching here of uh, giving everything away that you own. However, in this case, the Lord did call them to do, on, uh, to do that so that we could understand that we are called upon to give and to do so regularly and sacrificially. And so this, the, the, the breaking through of the supernatural in this situation involves something naturally supernatural, and that is the willingness to give of yourself and of what you had. I've quoted statistics before that show the majority of Christians in all churches give nothing or almost nothing to the work of the gospel. If we sow sparingly, we will reap sparingly. Now the Lord took what he was given and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke it and gave it to his disciples. He gave them loaves and fishes sufficient for the need of that day. Now, this doesn't mean you won't ever have to go grocery shopping again or that God will always provide physical resources in abundance. It means that you are to discover by looking to heaven what is God's plan to minister to the people he puts before you. Here's an interesting thought. Jesus, during his ministry, we know was fully God and fully man. But he voluntarily set aside the prerogatives of deity to live as a spirit-filled man in communion with his father, listening for the voice of God, doing only what his father told him to do. From that point of view, without diminishing Christ in any way as fully God, he was in the same position the disciples were in. He had no idea what his father was going to do. He was in the wilderness with 20,000 people and 12 guys who weren't very much help with five loaves and two fishes. And Jesus said, hey, I don't even have anything. Find out what we've got and let's give it to the people and I'll talk to dad 
and see what he's going to do about it. He's basically laid it out and said, hey, dad, we have five loaves and two fish for 20,000 people. Uh, If it's first come, first serve, that's fine. If you want to do something, that's fine too. And he found that the Lord uh, in heaven did have, his father in heaven did have something in mind, and that was to do this tremendous miracle. And so Jesus is just looking to heaven. He's saying, well, okay, we, yeah, well, here's the situation, here's the resources people are willing to give. Let's just seek our Father and see what he wants to do about this. Um, and it says there, uh, they all ate and were filled and took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. The disciples come into play here It says they gave to the multitudes and ended up with 12 baskets. Do the math. If there were 20,000 people, each of the 12 disciples would be responsible for distributing food to over 1,600 people. Have you ever worked a banquet? Have you ever ever had, or some of you have been waiters and waitresses, has your section ever been 1,600 people? Hey, you have 800 tables tonight. To, and dinner served right now. This is a lot of work. I mean, these guys are sweating. In all this talk about heaven's plan and provision, don't forget that being a messenger is hard work, even exhausting work. You see the, the, the kind of the natural, supernatural overlap here. It's like God just keeps providing bread and fish. It just coming out of Jesus' hands like crazy, and you're delivering it to groups of people as a waiter, uh, you know, who are spread out all over the countryside. Then they take up 12 baskets, 12 disciples, 12 baskets. If this was for the disciples, it teaches us that God doesn't neglect his servants, although you should expect to be the last one to be served. And so they they received from the Lord for the people. They served the people. And when all of that was done and they were exhausted, there was something for them. The section ends with the final count. We've read it already, 5,000 men plus women and children, which gives us the number we've been using, 20,000. I mean, at minimum, if there's as many women as men, there's 10,000. If there's one kid for each of those, there's 15,000. So we're talking about even 5,000 people is beyond our thinking, but upwards of 20,000 people. There are a bunch more lessons in this episode, but we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. In chapter 13, Jesus had told a series of parables describing the ministry of his disciples during his absence in between his two comings. They were to go throughout the world sharing the gospel as his messengers. We are his messengers who live between his two comings. And then we have the story of one of his messengers how he was treated and how we can expect to be treated by the devil and those taken captive by him to do his will and what we're to do about it. Messengers of the gospel can expect non-believers to try to silence them. The devil is loose. He's a liar, a thief, and a murderer, so you can expect subtle, sinister, even savage plans being formed against you. But God has plans for you too. You discover them when you look upon the world the way Jesus always does with compassion. Compassion isn't real unless it manifests itself in acts of compassion as you give of your resources regularly and sacrificially to minister to others. As I said, very few of us will ever be called upon to give everything, but we are called upon to give. 
And when you do that, God will multiply your ministry as he sees fit. Now I wanna end on a personal note. Recently on a Wednesday night at our service during the prayer time, one of the believers was prompted to share this passage from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 43, 18 and 19. The Lord says, do not remember former things nor consider things of old. Behold, I'm gonna do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now in the original context, these verses were promising the nation of Israel their return from exile in Babylon. And they looked forward even farther to their ultimate return to the land when their Messiah establishes the kingdom of heaven on earth. But God is also speaking through them to us as a fellowship of messengers of the gospel. I believe he's saying that there is something he has for us to do, something to accomplish, something he wants to spring forth like rivers in the desert, some new work. It may be doing something we're already involved in, but with greater fervency and in a new way. It may be something brand new. My question is, what do you think it is? Let's pray on it. Let's discover it. Let's do it. Let's look to heaven the way Jesus did with whatever provision and resource that we have already, figure out what the Lord wants us to do to touch a neighborhood or a city or a county or a world for Jesus Christ in some new way. Amen?